0: If you would, take your Bibles and open them to this glorious psalm, Psalm 118. I'm sure that all of us have a favorite song. Maybe your favorite song has special meaning to you because you relate it to some special occasion in your life. Or maybe it's because the lyrics and the musical accompaniment with those lyrics resonates with you in some special way. Whatever it is, there's most likely something special attached to that song in which it makes it near and dear to you. This morning we're going to look at a psalm that was very near to a man who went through a lot of trouble in his life. A man who really changed the history of the church. A man who had many enemies. A man who was even excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. This man was Martin Luther. For Luther, Psalm 118 was his favorite. In fact, listen to what he says about Psalm 118, he says this, quote, This is my own beloved psalm. Although the entire Psalter and all of Holy Scripture are dear to me as my only comfort and source of life, I fell in love with this psalm especially. Therefore, I call it my own. When emperors and kings, the wise and the learned and Even saints could not aid me. This psalm proved a friend and helped me out of many great troubles. As a result, it is dearer to me than all the wealth, honor, and power of the Pope, the Turk, and the Emperor. I would be most willing to trade this psalm for all of it. End quote. Why was this psalm Luther's own beloved psalm? Well, as we're going to see, this is a psalm of thanksgiving for God's goodness in delivering his people from their enemies. This is amazing that Martin Luther would turn to a psalm of thanksgiving. As his favorite psalm during times of trouble when his enemies were attacking. But that's what this psalm is all about. In fact, one commentator says this psalm may be classified as a communal thanksgiving for a great deliverance from the oppressing enemies that surrounded and almost destroyed the people of Israel. It's a psalm to thank God for his goodness in delivering His people. And one of the amazing things about Psalm 118 is that it is the single most referenced psalm in all of the pages of the New Testament. There is no other psalm that is more referenced than Psalm 118. In fact, it is the the only psalm that is quoted by all four Gospel writers. Three times by Matthew, three times by Mark, three times by Luke, and one time by John. This psalm was quoted or referred to by Jesus, by Paul, and by Peter. Clearly, Psalm 118 is a very significant psalm. Now, before we get into the text of this psalm, let me just give you a little bit of background to help you understand it. Who wrote this psalm? Who wrote this psalm? If you notice at the beginning of this hymn, of this psalm, right before verse 1, you have in your Bible just a bold title most likely. But we don't have any information about who wrote this psalm. Like we read earlier in Psalm 138, at the beginning of verse 1, it said a psalm of David. Which means it tells us there that David is the one who is writing that psalm. But here in Psalm 118, we don't see that there. We don't know exactly who wrote this psalm. Many believe that it was David who wrote this psalm. While others believe that it was a Davidic king. A king who was like David. David, a king of Israel who was there in Israel's history who resembled trust in God like David did. We can't be dogmatic about who wrote it, but Ezra, after the return of Israel from the exile, Ezra tells us in Ezra 3, 10, and 11, he says this, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They come back, they they come now to the temple where the foundation has been laid, and they're now wanting to praise God to sing praise to him. And Ezra says that they praised the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. David is dead by this time. So what what does he mean by this? Well, he tells us in verse 11, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. What words did the Israelites sing and thank and praise God with? The words of David, which were this For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 118. Notice what the psalmist says there Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So, Ezra seems to attribute these words here to David. These are actually the words of David. Well, again, we can't be dogmatic about it, but it was possibly David who wrote Psalm 118. What about the occasion? Well, we also don't know the occasion for writing this psalm. Some psalms tell us of the occasion, but again, we don't have this here. At the beginning of verse 1, before verse 1, it doesn't tell us what the occasion is. But while we don't know the specific occasion for writing this psalm, we do know that the author wrote it in response to God's deliverance in Israel or of Israel in some battle that they were engaged in. In fact, notice down in verse ten. Look down in verse ten. Notice what it says there. The psalmist says, "All nations surrounded me." What's going on there? There's war. There's battle. The nations have surrounded Israel. And so this psalm is written in response to God's victory over the nations who were surrounding His people. See why this would have been near and dear to Martin Luther? A man who had many enemies, many people surrounding him, wanting to take his life. Psalm 118 is also the last psalm in what is called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Egyptian Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L, Hallel. Psalms 113 through 118 make up the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, and they are called this because Psalm 114, which is a part of these Hallel Psalms, is about the exodus. The exodus of Israel and God's deliverance of His people from Egypt. And so these are called, Psalms 113 through 118, these together are called the Egyptian Hallel songs. Others just call this group of songs the Hallel songs. Why Hallel? Well, the word Hallel in Hebrew means praise, praise. These are psalms of praise. Psalms 113 through 118 are psalms of praise. Do you want to praise God? Open your Bible and turn to Psalm 113 and begin to read through 118 and you will begin to praise God because that's what these psalms are all about. Psalms of praise. And these psalms here, they became very significant in Jewish history as they were sung before and after the Passover meal in the Jewish community. These songs here, Psalms 113 through 118, were all sung before and after the Passover meal as the Jews partook. They would sing Psalms 113 and 114 before the Passover meal, and then they would sing Psalms 115 through 118 after the Passover meal. In fact, at the Last Supper... Jesus is there with his disciples, and Matthew tells us in Matthew twenty six thirty after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What did they do after they finished the meal, the Passover meal? Jesus and his disciples sang. What did they sing? This psalm. Most likely, they sang Psalm. 118, before Jesus made His way to the Garden of Gethsemane where He would be arrested and eventually crucified. And as we're going to see, this psalm would have had tremendous significance on that night. As Jesus was the one in whom the people were shouting, Hosanna! As Jesus came and entered into Jerusalem on a donkey just a few days before he partook of that Passover meal, the people were laying the palm branches down and they were shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Jesus is also the stone in which the builders rejected. And all of that is prophesied and contained right here in this psalm, in Psalm 118. And so let's look at this psalm in the Hallel, this psalm of praise, and see how the psalmist calls us to give thanks to God for His goodness. As we work our way through this psalm, we're going to break it down into four parts. First, we're going to see the exhortation to thanksgiving. Second, we'll see the explanation for thanksgiving. Third, we'll see the exertion of thanksgiving. And then finally, we'll see the echo of thanksgiving. Let's look at our first point here, what we'll call the exhortation to thanksgiving. Look at verse 1. Notice what the psalmist says there. It says, "'Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His lovingkindness is everlasting.'" Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, notice that the psalmist gives an urgent call to give thanks to the Lord there in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And as I said, if if the psalmist is not David, he is some kind of king like David. He was a military leader who led Israel into battle and was victorious in battle. And so after the battle, he comes back to Israel and he tells the people of Israel, give thanks to the Lord. He gives that exhortation there in verse 1. Notice that word, Lord, there in verse 1. In some of your Bibles, it's in all caps. All capital. L-O-R-D. Why? Why do we have it in all caps there? Well, Lord there is the name of God. That is Yahweh. Yahweh, the name of God. The name that God revealed to Moses. He said, I am who I am. He is Yahweh. And the psalmist mentions Yahweh 28 times in this psalm. 28 28 times the name Yahweh is mentioned in this psalm. You see, this, this psalm here is not about the psalmist. The psalm is about who? It's about Yahweh. It's about God. And what does he tell us? Give thanks to Him. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? Well, He gives us two reasons here in verse 1. Reason number 1, for He is good. We're commanded to give thanks to God because our God is good. I remember after I was first saved in the church that Sarah and I, were attending at that time, there was a saying that, that would go like this. Someone would say, God is good. And somebody else would respond with, all the time. All the time. God is good all the time. And that's what the psalmist is telling us here. We should praise God and give Him thanks because He is good. That's who He is. He is a good God, and He's good all the time. You see, some people will only thank God when they perceive God to be good. Only when something good happens to them in their life, because they perceive it to be something good that God has done. But outside of that thing that God has done, well, I don't know if He's so good. What is the psalmist telling us here? God is good all the time, which means we should always be thanking God for his goodness. Then he gives a second reason reason number two to give thanks to God. He says, For his loving kindness is everlasting. You should give thanks because His loving kindness is everlasting. That word loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. And this refers to God's loyal love or His covenant love. Another way that we could say this is that this is God's merciful love. It's a special love that God has for his people, a covenant love that God has for his people that he is covenanted with. It's his loving kindness. And this love that God has, this chesed love, involves action on behalf of the one who is being loved. That is, God acts on behalf of his people because he has a loyal covenant, merciful love for them. For us, for us who are his children, who belong to him, God has this love for us, this covenant with us. We're a part of the new covenant, we belong to him. Therefore, He has this covenant love for us, and God acts on our behalf because He acts for His people. And then the psalmist tells us that this love is an everlasting love, that God's love for His people never ends. If you ever think that God somehow doesn't love you, get rid of that thought. Get that out of your mind. Because God's love is everlasting. God's covenant love for you is everlasting. It does not end. It will not stop. He loves you. And then notice in verses 2-4, through the psalmist calls on three different groups of people to worship God and to give thanks to Him for His loving kindness. Notice he says there, O let Israel... Who is that? That's the nation of Israel. Then he says, Oh, let the house of Aaron. Who is that? It's the priests who led the people in worship. The house of Aaron. Then he says, Oh, let those who fear the Lord. Who is that? It's everyone else. Anyone else who fears the Lord. Including Gentiles. Anyone who has a a reverence for God. Give thanks to Him. Worship Him. Israel, the house of Aaron, and anyone else who fears the Lord, give Him thanks. All worshipers of God should worship Him and give thanks to Him. Why? For He is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. Have you ever struggled to give thanks to God? Just remember Psalm 118. Open your Bible to Psalm 118 and allow your heart to thank Him for His goodness and His everlasting love for you. And so that's the exhortation. That's the exhortation. Let's look at our second point, point number two, what we'll call the explanation for thanksgiving. The explanation for thanksgiving. Notice what the psalmist says in in verse 5, verses 5 through 9. He says this, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Notice in verse 5 there, the, the psalmist says, From my distress I called upon the Lord. This is now an explanation for thanksgiving. And he says he was in distress. Uh, the, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, that word for distress there could also mean straight or Narrow. Straight or narrow. And what the psalmist is saying here is that he was in a narrow place, like being in the crevice of a crack. Things are are pressing in around him. The idea here is that he's under great pressure with things that are pushing in and around the psalmist. I am claustrophobic, I don't like small spaces. Some of you might be claustrophobic as well. And if you are, you understand what happens when you get into small spaces. Doesn't feel good. You don't like it. What happens? You begin to fear and to stress out. Because you don't like being in these tight places. And that's the idea that this king here is saying that he's going through. He's stressed He's in a tight place and fear comes over him. So what does he do? Notice what he does in verse 5. I called upon the Lord. I called upon the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He answered the king and set him in a large place. What's he saying there? He took him out of that stressful situation and he put him in a place where he's going to be okay. Where he doesn't have to fear anymore. The idea there is that the Lord took him out of this fearful situation. What did this king come to understand then? Notice what he says there in verse 6. He says, The Lord is for me. In fact, he says it twice there in verses 6 and 7. The Lord is for me. He understands here that the Lord is for him. Hebrews 13.6 quotes verse 6 here and says this, So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 118 and verse 6. And he says there that we can say with confidence that the Lord is for me. Listen, church, the Lord is for you. And you can say that with confidence. That because you belong to him, because you are his child, he is for you. He's not against you. He's for you. So do I have to be afraid? No. I don't have to be afraid. Why? Because the psalmist says here, man cannot touch me. There is nothing that man can do to me apart from the sovereignty of God. Isn't that amazing? You can walk through all of life with no fear of man. Never fearing man. Never fearing that someone is going to do something to you outside of the sovereign hand of God. Because God is for you. That's why the psalmist even says here he can look with satisfaction on those who hate him on his enemies. Those who want to kill him, those who want to attack him, he can now look with satisfaction upon them because he knows, well, they can't even touch me outside of the sovereign hand of God because my God is for me. Now, does this mean that we will live a suffering-free life? No. As Job, right? (laughs) We'll suffer through life. It's part of it. But what this means is that even in the times of suffering, God is with us and He will be with us all the way through that suffering. The psalmist knew this, Jesus knew this, and we can know this in our lives as well. We don't have to fear a man. In fact, who should we fear? We should fear God. We should fear Him knowing that He is always with us. Now, look at verses 8 and 9. Notice what the psalmist says there. The psalmist says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord. And then he gives this double comparison here. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man and then to trust in princes. No man, no prince, which even means the government here, is any place to run to in times of need. Don't run to any man, and don't run to anybody in authority over you in in the government to save you in your time of need. Who do we run to? We run to God, we run to Him. Because no man and no prince can save us. Why? Why can they not save us? Because they are unreliable and they're limited in their resources. They can only offer us so much. But God is unlimited in His resources. (laughs) There is no limit to God's provision and care for us. Man and, and princes, they are... They're not trustworthy. Can't trust in them. But God is. God is trustworthy. And so he is the one that we are to run to, he is the one that we are to trust in always. Now, interesting fact. Let me just give you a quick, interesting fact here. Verses 8 and 9 are the two central verses in the entire English Bible. In our English translations, there are 5,586 verses before verse uh, 8, 15,586 verses before verse 8, and there are 15,586 verses after verse 9. I didn't count them all. Someone else did. And so if we were to go right to the middle of our Bibles and hang our lives on the two verses that are right in the middle of our Bibles it would be these two verses right here, verses 8 and 9. Don't trust in man or princes, but trust in God alone. Trust in Him alone. Now, we said that in verse 5, this king is in distress. Why was he in distress? Well, verses 10 through 14 help us to understand why. Notice what the psalmist says there, beginning in verse 10. He says, all nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. We see four times here that the psalmist speaks of the nations surrounding Him. Even surrounding Him like bees. This past summer, we had a wasp nest in the tree outside of our house, and We were outside playing football, and I threw the ball, and it hit the wasp nest. And they came out swarming. Poor Weston. Yeah, he got it. But they came out ready to attack, they were ready to attack. And that's what the king is saying here with these nations. They've swarmed them, ready to attack, ready to get them. They were swarming Israel. And at this point, someone might think, well, it's all over for Israel. They're surrounded. They're being swarmed upon like bees. The psalmist then says here three times, I love this, in the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Now, this is not him boasting in himself and what he did. Because notice that he cut them off only how? In the name of the Lord. In the name of Yahweh. What he's saying here is God acted. The power was in him. The power was in his name. Not in the name of the king. There was no power in him apart from God. The king had to trust in the sovereign supernatural power of God. And when he did that, the nations were cut off. The Hebrew word that's used there for cut off is The word for circumcision, literally, I circumcised them, meaning that he completely destroyed them. That's the idea there. You see, this king had to act. He had to act. But it was God who enabled him to get the victory. And therefore, it was ultimately God who received the victory. And then, what does this king do? He boasts in God. He says, It's all in the name of the Lord that I was able to do this. Not in my own strength, not in my own power. It was all in the name of Yahweh, the God who has all power and all authority over everything. He is the one who saved us when we were surrounded by the nations. Notice in verse 13, he says, You pushed me violently so that I was falling. Who is that you? That you there is not God, but this is the enemy. The enemy had pushed him to the point that he was falling. As if someone would look at him and go, It's over. You're now to the point of of literally falling off that cliff. You're going down. And it's all over. I love what the the psalmist says there. He says, but the Lord helped me. (laughs) God came to my rescue and he delivered me. Even when I was falling, God came and he caught me and he picked me up. Because he has the power and the authority, the strength to do that. Which is why he responds there in verse 14. Notice what he says there. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. You see, this king didn't find strength in himself. He couldn't find joy in himself and joy in his circumstances. That's the idea there of the song, of singing. The idea is there is that he's joyful. And he couldn't even save himself. He says here, this was all of God's doing. You see, when we need strength, or we need joy, or we need deliverance, oftentimes we will focus on the strength, or the joy, or the deliverance, right? Without ever focusing on God. But what does the psalmist do? He focuses upon the Lord. He says, the Lord is my strength and song. His focus was upon Yahweh, not upon His circumstances, not upon the things that are going on around Him. He needs strength, He needs joy in His life, and He needs to be delivered. He needs salvation. And so where does He turn? He turns to Yahweh. He turns to God. See, when you are in times of needing strength or joy or deliverance, don't focus on those things, but focus on the Lord and seek Him, and then watch and see how you will then have strength and joy and deliverance. Because we find all of that when we look to Him. He is our strength, He is our song, He is our salvation. Then look at verses 15 through 18. The psalmist says there in verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Notice what the response is for God's people when, God's, when God acts here. Notice verse 15 the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is the, in the tents of the righteous. What's, what's he saying here? That God has now delivered them. God is their strength, God is their song, God is their deliverer. And they have seen God deliver them from the enemy. And so, how do the people now respond? They respond with joyful shouting. That joyful shouting, the sound of it is in the tents of the the righteous. You see, God acted and the people couldn't keep silent. I love this. Isn't this good? They see God's hand act and they can't stay silent about it. What do they have to do? Shout! Shout! Tell somebody about it. Let the nations know we're going to sing out unto our God. We're going to sing joyfully for our God has saved us. God acted. God conquered Israel's enemies. And that's what the psalmist means there when he says the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand there is, is symbolic of strength. It's a symbol of strength. In fact, this is the same thing that Moses said back in Exodus 15 after God brought Israel out of Egypt. Listen to what Moses said. In Exodus 15, in verse 6, Moses said in his song, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. God, it's your strength. God, You are the Sovereign One. You are the Supreme One. You have all power over my enemies. And just as Moses and the Israelites who were with Moses saw God's strong hand act, this king and these people saw the Lord act. They saw the Lord save them. And so they give a shout of joy. To God for saving them. And then I love the confidence of the king and the total trust in the Lord in verse 17. Notice what he says there. He says, I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. Martin Luther loved this verse. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. You see, this king here recognizes that he and the nation of Israel were on the brink of death. But God saved them. God allowed them to live. What was the purpose of that? What was the purpose in God allowing them to live? Notice what he says the second half of verse 17. And tell of the works of the Lord. God saved these people. His purpose in saving them was so that they could tell of the works of the Lord. God didn't save this king and his people so that they could stay silent. But so that they could tell others about God's saving work in their lives. Church, isn't that us? Isn't that the purpose for which God saved us? not just to save us from eternity in hell although it's true but so that we could go and tell the world the wonders of God the works of God what God has done in taking a wretched sinner like me and saving me God did that you realize how amazing that is church? that God would take a wretched soul like mine and save me For what purpose? So that we can go and tell others. So we can go live as a witness of what God does for wretched sinners who come to Him. And this king here has confidence, total trust in the Lord. And yet at the same time, there is this heart of humility with this king in verse 18 where he recognizes that God allowed this to happen in his life in order to discipline him. Notice what he says there. He says, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. See, he understands, he has confidence in God and yet at the same time, he is so humble before God because he realizes and recognizes that God's sovereign hand has put him through all of this in order that he might be disciplined so that he would not boast in himself. God wanted to grow this king. God wanted to grow this king's trust in him. And so he puts him through this trial to get a point across to this king so that this king would not trust in himself but would trust in God alone. And for that, he and this whole nation should be thankful. Church, do you ever thank God for the trials? For the trials and the tribulation that God sovereignly puts you through in order to grow your trust in Him. Do you thank Him for that? We should. Because the heart of this king humbled himself before God and he was thankful for the discipline that God had In his life. And he responds with a heart of thanksgiving. You see, God took this king and the nation of Israel through all of this in order to teach them a lesson and to strengthen and grow their trust in him. Praise God. And that explains why, going back to verse 1, why they should give thanks to God. And why all of us should as well. And so that's the exhortation and the explanation. Let's look at our third point, point. number three, the exertion of thanksgiving. The exertion of thanksgiving. You see, thanksgiving is not just something that is to be done with our lips. But thanksgiving is something that should be shown in our lives. Our lives should be lived in such a way that we're giving thanks to God. Matthew Henry said it this way, thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. And that was this king. He didn't just say thank you. He showed it by his actions. Notice verse 19. Notice what he says there, 19 through 21. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. Notice there that the king calls for the gates to be open. We're not sure what these gates are, whether this was the gates of the city or whether this was the gates of the temple. I believe that this is the gates of the temple. Why? because down in verse 27 we see a sacrifice that's being given so i believe he's talking about the gates of the temple but notice notice the king returns from battle and what does he do he worships he worships and he led all of god's people to worship what do they do In giving worship to God? Notice in verse 19 and verse 21, they give thanks to the Lord. They enter through the gates to worship the Lord and give thanks to Him. This king and the people give thanks to God because God answered their prayer, the prayer of the king, and He saved them from their enemies. And then notice what was the, sh- the, the shout of praise that all, all the people were giving in the temple. Notice verse 22, verses 22 through 27. It says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifices with cords to the horns of the altar. Now, notice verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who is the stone that is being referred to here in this psalm? Originally, it was the king. You see, originally, in the context here of Psalm 118, this is the king. This is the one who was rejected by the nations as they were trying to kill him, right? We just, we just read about that. They, they had surrounded him like bees. They wanted to destroy this king. And they wanted to wipe out this nation. The kings of the surrounding nations were the builders who were trying to build their empires and get rid of Israel. They rejected that king. They rejected that stone. And this stone here, this king, was the one whom God had chosen to save Israel. It was this king. It was him. At this point in time, in God's sovereign plan, God had this king, this man, whether it was David or another king like David, on the throne at that time to save the nation of Israel as this king trusted in God. That was God's sovereign plan. And so he became the chief cornerstone, and Israel became the central place in God's salvific plan. But now, as we've been studying in 1 Peter, who ultimately is the stone in whom this is referring to? This is Christ. This is Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one in whom God's entire plan of salvation centers on. He is the stone that the builders rejected. The spiritual leaders of Israel, they rejected Him. And it was all prophesied right here in Psalm 118. Jesus and Paul and Peter all understood that this stone was ultimately referring to Christ. And this was God's doing. It was God's perfect plan, as verse 23 tells us. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. God acted. God did this. God is the one who sent the stone, right? God is the one who sent his son to come to this world to live a perfect life and die on a cross and be raised again on the third day. God is the one who acted. God is the one who did all of it to save us. And what should we say? We should say with the people of Israel, verse 23, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is amazing. This is marvelous. This gospel is magnificent. God's plan. God's doing. This is amazing. Now, Look at verse 24. 24, Verse 24 is often quoted at the beginning of a worship service to rejoice in this day that we're gathered together. And we can rightfully say that this is the day that the Lord has made because every day is the day that the Lord has made, right? And so we can rejoice and be glad in it. But this context here in verse 24 is the day when Israel and their king were saved. That's specifically the day. That's the day to rejoice and be glad. That was the day in which Israel and their king could rejoice and be glad because God acted and God saved us from our enemies. But prophetically, this is also the day when Christ went to the cross to save us from our sins. That is the day that the Lord made and we should rejoice and be glad in that day because that was the day that our sins were paid for every one of them at the cross that was the day that the wrath of god was no longer abiding upon me but christ stepped in and he took the wrath of god upon himself for me that was the day and that's the day that we should rejoice in and be glad It was that day that our sins were paid for. It was that day that God's wrath was satisfied. Rejoice in that day. Now, notice verse 25. It says, O Lord, do save. This is the cry of the king. And the people, after God had rescued them, they were praying for God to continue to save them from the surrounding nations and give them victory over them. The Hebrew word for do save is the word Hosanna. Hosanna. Where do we hear this word? Where do we hear this word Hosanna? We hear this word coming from the mouths of those who were shouting when Jesus entered into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week. Matthew 21 and verse 9 tells us the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! What were the people quoting? Psalm 118. They were quoting this passage right here. But the king, the context here, the king and the nations of Israel are praying for God to continue to save them from the surrounding nations and and to bring prosperity to them. And then the people actually give a, a blessing to the king in verse 26. They're blessing the king. Notice what they say in verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In this psalm, the blessing is attributed to the king who saved the nation, who trusted in God and in whom God used to save the people. But we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in who? In the Messiah. In Jesus. Which is why the people were shouting this when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed are you, the one that is riding on a donkey, coming in to save us. And then, then the nation of Israel declares in in verse 27, notice what they say there, the Lord is God. They're saying, their God is the only God. None of the surrounding nations' gods are the one true God. There is only one true God, and He is the God of Israel. He is Yahweh, the God that they worship. The God who has saved them. Yahweh alone is God, and He has made His light shine on His people. Those who trust in Him What he's saying here, those who trust in him have spiritual blessing. Blessing comes from trust in Yahweh, in this one God. And what do the people do then to show their thankfulness to God for all that he has done for them? Second part of verse 27, notice they bring a sacrifice to the altar. What do they do? They worship him. They act. They do something to show their worship and thanksgiving to God. And they come and bring a sacrifice. Now, listen church, we've been been studying 1 Peter. Does this sound familiar here? Does this sound familiar? Remember what Peter said we are to do as those who are part of the holy priesthood in 1 Peter 2.5? We offer up what? spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ you see we're to act act thanks living we're to live our lives in a way that is bringing a spiritual sacrifice to our God giving him thanks for all that he has done for us thanking him for saving us lord thank you and now here is my life, a spiritual sacrifice unto you, O oh God. It's not something that's just to be done with our lips. But it's also to be done with our lives. Giving thanks to God. Why? Out of a heart of gratitude for who our God is. Which is what the psalmist reminds us of as we come to this end, the end of this psalm. Notice our our final point here. Point number four, what we call the, the echo of thanksgiving. In Verse 28, notice he says there, you are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I stole you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. The psalmist reminds us again to give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good and because his loving kindness is everlasting. In closing. Just as, as this psalm was near, and dear to Martin Luther. This this psalm here was also near to our Savior. Why? Because he was the fulfillment of it. He prophesied of him. Jesus would have sung this psalm, on the night that he was betrayed. Knowing that he was the stone that the builders rejected. And the people had cried out, Hosanna! Just days before, hailing him as the Savior. Save us! And then a few days later, they would cry out, What? Crucify him. Crucify him, crucify him. And the amazing thing is, our Lord knew this was coming. Our Lord knew. He sang this psalm with his disciples, and he knew this is speaking of me. I am the stone that they have rejected. But he's willing to be rejected so that we could receive salvation. And as those who have received this gift of salvation, how should we respond? With a heart of thanksgiving. (laughs) Thanksgiving to our God. Why? For our God is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. We thank You. Thank You, thank You for your perfect plan. We thank you for Christ who is the stone in which the builders rejected but who came willingly to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Father, we thank you for our living stone Because we know the stone was rejected, but he did not stay dead. But he rose again on the third day, and he is alive, he's victorious. And Lord, we worship you as our victorious king. For we know that you are good, and your loving kindness is everlasting. Father, may we live this week And not just this week, but every week with our hearts focused upon giving thanks to You for You are a good God. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who does not know You, who has not turned from their sin and put their faith in the stone, the chief cornerstone in Jesus Christ who made the payment for sin and who rose again on the third day to offer eternal life to all who would repent of their sin and trust in Him. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here who is not saved, who is not trusting in the stone, the living stone. Father, open their heart. Father, save them. And may this day be a day of thanksgiving for them where they will shout out with joyful shouting Our God is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. Father, may You do it all for Your glory and for Your glory alone. We thank You and we praise You in Christ's name. Amen.